we are into John's Gospel. And so, previously in John's Gospel, um, do we get the sound effect? Oh, we didn't get the sound effect. Dang it. I had the whole sound effect work. All right. Um, we are in John chapter 2, and previously we drank deeply from God's joyful fun. Do you remember last week we had a wedding? It was about wine and parties. It was really exciting. Um, Jesus' ridiculously general, generous provisions for a wedding, and that was all meant to point us towards the, 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 the excitement that God has to be with his people on the last day at the wedding party. So good and so much. But this week, uh, Jesus is not the life of the party. He's the party pooper. He is breaking up a party. And you're like, okay, hold on. It's interesting. Why did these two things happen? I thought if Jesus is all parties, if Jesus is you know, down on, down on the celebration, and, and, and why? We're going to dig into that. And we're going to try and understand our Savior more and more, and it will be good. So we are at Passover time. Which means if you're a faithful Jew, you head to Jerusalem and specifically to the temple in Jerusalem. And you do that to remember God coming to live with his people. See, when God called his people out of slavery in Egypt, this is sort of the birth of the nation moment, and he came to live with them in the promised land, the temple was the place to go to be with him. It's not just a place for worship, it's God's house it's where he lives and it's the only place in the whole world where you can go to meet that god one place you had to travel there now so jesus goes up to the festival and it is a big party the city would have been chockers with people from all over the world mostly jews but some who aren't and so it's party time it's carnival there's people everywhere and he heads to the temple He's strolling in the courts, it says there. Most likely in that, oh, cool, I've got this thingy. I can, most likely in that court of the Gentiles area. So that's the main building, right? That's the holy place, the most holy place in there. Um, and the, um, or court of, actually, sorry, holy place, most holy place, court of women, I think that one is. Um, and you've got there that court of the Gentiles, this area here. That's probably where he was. Now, Jesus, as he, as he walked around there and looks at the entrances to the, to the internal areas, he would have seen a series of keep out signs along the walls at regular intervals. Now, two of these keep, keep out signs have been survived to the present day. We've got them. Um, so the most complete of them says, I don't expect you to be able to read that, even uh, with a proper projector you wouldn't be able to, no alien may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. No alien. That's the court of the Gentiles because Gentiles ain't going any closer. Right? If you're not a Jew, a pure-blooded Jew, then you can't go in. So when I say this area here is the area, the only place available for someone who's not born Jewish to meet God, I mean it. They can't get any closer. This is a special place and it should be a holy place. And yet when Jesus walks in, all he can hear is moo, bar, clink of coin and the sounds of business. Do you see the difference between what he was hoping for and what he saw? See, John doesn't say these businesses were crooked or greedy. Jesus' problem is just that they're there. Uh, it's supposed to be the Lord's house, the one place in the world where I can go to meet God and find his acceptance. But I can't. Now, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, 
So this, this, is, this is the Christian story. This is the Bible story. The very start of creation, when, ever since the start of creation, and Adam and Eve sinned and had to leave the garden, it has required sacrifice, blood sacrifice, to be accepted by God, to talk to God, to approach Him again. And that's what they were selling those animals for in the courtyard. But instead of being a place for people to meet God, just because, so, I mean, it's a legitimate excuse, right? Oh, you need, you need the animals. You need to have the sacrifice. But the end result was it was a coals. Have you ever tried to do, I don't know, maybe someone here has, um, deep prayer and meditation in an aisle of coals? Ever had a crack? Just, you know, just grab your Bible, sit down there, legs crossed or something, just try to pray. I've never, I've never done that because it wouldn't work. And you wouldn't, and they couldn't. And it upsets Jesus. And so he sits down. And he gets some cords. And he plats a whip. I've plaited a whip. It takes a little while. Maybe Jesus did it hurriedly, but he's, this is a, he's sitting there, upset at what he's seeing. And he's plaiting a whip. And he starts using it. And he drives them all out. Cows, sheep, cashiers, shopkeepers, smashes stacks of coins, flips tables, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. There is no other recorded incident like it. Jesus using physical force like this. What was going on completely got under Jesus' skin. Now, I do want you to note the making of the whip thing. Because Jesus doesn't just fly into a rage. Did you notice that? Like there's time taken here. It's clearly passionate, but also clearly calculated. Even if it took a couple of minutes, Jesus took the time he needed to get the tools ready for the job. He's in control of what he's doing here. We're not said, it's not said here that he's angry. Now, by the way, it, it's, not, it's lots of times it's said in the Gospels that Jesus was angry or deeply upset. Uh, we're going to get one not, lo not long after this in John. But here it's not. He was in control and he took appropriate action. Because I think, I think sometimes, <clears throat> do you know how sometimes like uh, we, we, we have responses and you can kind of like explain it away as really wise like after the fact? So like you're in a, con like a conflict con uh, sort of situation and, and you feel really deeply angry and resentful inside and you, and late, and, but you don't say anything. And later on you're like, oh yeah, I was really self-controlled and I didn't have a go. But really, actually, you were just scared of conflict and you, didn't, you were too, too gutless to actually say the hard thing. But you can justify it later. Or the other side, um, where you just, you just let rip and got angry and you lost your temper. And it wasn't courage for you to say the hard thing in the situation. It was just you lost your temper and so you lost your inhibitions and it wasn't controlled. I don't think we see signs of either of those two things here. Jesus here seems to feel something deeply and yet took a moment, measured his response and then gave it. Now, why did he do it? Why? Last week he's the provider of the party and a few days later he brings a citywide party to a standstill. Kills the party. Well, the reason is actually the same reason that he resurrected the party the week before. I want you to hear that. It's the same reason that he resurrected the party the week before. And here's the point of the whole talk. So if you get nothing else, hear this one. It is because he is zealous 
for people to be with God. He is zealous for people to be with God. Why was that the party last week? Well, the miracle with the wine was all about anticipating the great wedding at the end of time when God will be with his people again. It was lavish and luxurious because that's how, because God's excited. He's going to throw a party when he gets to be with his people again, fully and finally. Because he is zealous to be with you, to be with the ones that he loves and has died for. But here, something's getting in the way of that thing. It is stopping people from being able to pray. And Jesus cannot let it stay like that. He will not let the barrier remain when this is the moment. This is the one place. This is it. If they can't do it here, then they can't do it anywhere. This is a bottleneck and you're blocking it. And it's hard because when I stop and I think about my life, think about my heart, my habits of time, I guess I've got to ask you because I've got to ask me, is your life and is your heart like that temple? Is it busy? Full? Maybe full of good things, maybe even seemingly necessary things, but, but there's no space. Is there space carved out to meet with God? See, Jesus wanted there to be space for them to be still with God. Have you carved out space for that? Do, do, do you prioritize are you zealous for it is are you like this is my thing this is my one thing being with my god this is what i have there's a nice um uh my friend and i've seen it around every now and again someone will post on facebook i want god the rest is details and there's something to that isn't there and i think that's what we see with jesus both at the wedding and here look you it it, it it might even be religious things. Like, are you at church on a thousand rosters and therefore not able to just stop and take a moment to pray and be with God and listen to him speak to you and just let his word wash over you? And get off the rosters. We don't need you doing that. We need, we need all of us to be with our God. Our doing with God always has to flow from our being with God. Hear that? Our doing for God must always, and is only productive when it flows from our being with God. Are you desperate to be with God? Like Jesus was desperate for you to be able to be with God. Sometimes it can't help with that because I find it hard to be desperate to be with God because I think, I, th I think and I feel all of my all of my human brokenness and messed upness and all the things that stop me from being with God, all the things that make me feel stupid when I might go to sort of tell God what's been happening or, oh, that dumb thing that I did, that sin that I've got to confess, oh, and I don't want to face it, I don't want to go to him. It might help you to put these two stories together, to remember from last week the generous welcome, the excitement that God has to be with his people. So if you think, hold on, when I carve out time to be with God, is it just going to be bad? Is it just going to be dumb? But remember what the reception will be like when you go to God as the real you and just tell him. There is joy in heaven. Now, there's another question here. Are you zealous for others to be with God? Will you fight for yourself and others to have quiet time with Jesus? 
I mean, this is, this is really risky because I've got every finger I've got in my hands pointing at me here. Do you do the dishes so that a number of member, another member of your family will have time to pray? You could do that, couldn't you? If there's, a member of your, if there's a member of your family who works hard and doesn't have that space, and I need to do that way more. I'm going to have a crack at doing that kind of thing this week. Taking things away from other members of my family to give them space to pray and be with God. Ask me how I go, because I'll need some accountability, right? But I want to. This is what I want to do. Maybe, maybe if you're zealous for other people to be with God, you could volunteer to be part of Little Souls and do something like, like if, if you know how to pray to God, you know how to talk to, talk to someone, right? That's not hard. If you know how to pray to God, you could lead the kids in a time of prayer. Show them how to talk to their Heavenly Father. That's all you'd have to do. That's making it a priority to teach someone else how to be with God, modeling it so that they can be with their God. Are, you, are we zealous for that? That is huge. That is not small. And you think, oh, I just went and I just prayed with the kids and led them in prayer. I didn't really do anything. Yeah, but you did the most important thing. It's beautiful. See, Jesus was desperate for the nations to be with God. It's why he cleared out the temple. And he was willing to look like a complete idiot in order to do this. This is one of the fun things about the psalm that they realize. Um, the, the, the disciples, did you notice as they, uh, as they sort of see Jesus doing this, they're like, oh, this is totally reminding me of something. This is like Psalm 69. It, it, it turns on a light bulb for, for, the, for the disciples. They, they're wondering, is, this, is Jesus like David? Now, with the image of Jesus clearing out a coals full of customers, staff, and stock in your heads, um, think of this old psalm. The psalm, this, this, is, this is what the disciples were doing. They were thinking this old psalm that they knew from, from church, well, synagogue for them, right? It's a psalm of David. Uh, he was a great king. He lived about a thousand years before Jesus. He's actually Jesus' great-great-great-grandfather as well. Um, and he desperately wanted to build a house for God. See, this was before they had this permanent sort of um, stone temple for God. They only had a tent. But God said, no, I'm not going to let you. Your son will do it. You've been a man of blood. He was a warrior. I'm not going to, your son will do it. But David was still so pumped. I don't know if you know this. He gathered a temple's worth of gold, silver, bronze, wood, stone, and iron. And he built this massive stockpile for it, for Solomon, so that when he got around to it, it would be there. This is how excited Jesus, um, sorry, David was about building a temple for God. Now, this psalm, Psalm 69, was written about a time when his passion for this temple was affecting his friendships. In fact, affecting his friendships might be a bit of an understatement here. Let me find the, um, so there's, there's meant to be a picture of David there. Very, very white, not very Israeli, but that's all right. Um, this is David, right? In that psalm, this is the line that they remembered. Zeal for your house consumes me. But what comes after that? Well, the insults of those who insult you fall on me. So I care about the temple and anyone who thinks that, you know, you're, this God is silly, well, they think I'm silly. In fact, it goes further. When I weep and I fast, when I do my religious observances, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, when I repent, people make ins they insult me. They make sport of me. Those who sit at the gates mock me. I'm the song of the drunkards. When, when, when you go to a pub and you hear people like singing a song that's insulting you because they think it's hilarious, you're not popular. And if you're the king... David's, and this is all because of his zeal for God's house. 
Every spiritual activity that he's involved in promotes humiliation. They just do not get why David cares so much. They think he is an idiot, a crazy zealot for God's temple. They think he's dumb for caring so much. Has anyone ever thought you were dumb for caring so much about God? Look, we are super sensitive to what, makes, what will make us unliked, aren't we? And we will avoid it like the plague. I know I do. Right? David, on the other hand, has no friends anymore because he cares so much about God's house. Religion is fine, but you know people take it too far. They're the kinds of things you'll hear. Those subtle words that just crush you down from being who you really know you are. Oh, religion is okay, but you know it does, it does belong in the public square. You, know, you shouldn't let your religion affect your politics. So these sound like familiar things, just subtly designed to stop you from being who you are because they, people don't want you to risk people, people don't want to risk you actually saying what you think and having that come from your religion. It stops us, but it doesn't have to. See, David here has owned his faith publicly and his own family think he's become a religious nut even. Except, as you read through the psalm, you start to realize David's not gone crazy. Like, he's not gone for, oh, I didn't get, I want to get that meme of, you know, the crazy guy pointing to all his, like, conspiracy theories on the wall. He, he's not become that guy because he, he lets details go. You see, in, um, later on in the psalm, you sort of see these things and, and he's like, look, I'll let stuff go. I mean, if I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving, this will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. It's like the sacrifice part, yeah, look, it matters, it's important, but look, I'll even, even the sacrifice part, it's like almost the most important thing. Details, details, it's okay. I just, I just want people to have a good heart before God. He doesn't want much. He just wants people to be able to praise God and be with God. He's not gone crazy. He just knows that this is important. He knows that it matters. Caring's not cool, is it? Caring is not cool. You don't look cool when you care a lot about something. You risk, you risk memes being made of you. You can sound shrill or extreme. Or at least that's the fear, isn't it? We fear being thought of as someone extreme. Well, when Jesus sticks his neck out to... Um, how can I... Can you just flick that to a blank for me? Because that's it's freaking me out, that picture. Um... When Jesus sticks his neck out to make the temple available for prayer, the disciples make the connection. See, this is the thing. The Old Testament, it's not just predictions and miracles that testify to who Jesus is. The disciples are starting to see that even the great figures of the Old Testament, God has arranged all of history to help us understand who Jesus is better. And so they're standing there thinking, this is Psalm 69. This is that song. Remember, this is the song we sung as kids. Jesus is doing it. He's being it. He's being David in Psalm 69. Now, the Jews demand a sign. They're not happy. I mean, it's, it's not quite descended into a full-on riot. Um, actually, yeah, throw me to the... Where's that temple one? Because that one's... Yeah, here we go. Um, so you see there the, um, that, that section there. The, that's the... Um, what, they, what do they call it? The Anatolia. The Fort of Antonia. Okay, so that's the Fort of Antonia, that big bit up the back. That is full of Roman soldiers. Okay. 
So this has probably not got to riot stage, otherwise they would have come in. Romans do not like riots. They would come and quell things quickly. Um, but the Jews, they are not seeing much David in Jesus. They are not thinking, oh, wow, this is great. The great, great King David's greatest son has come. Um, they are probably the temple authorities um, in this scenario, maybe some Sadducees, members of the Sanhedrin, and they, they are not happy with Jesus because this is an insult to them. So this makes them look bad, right? They're the temple authorities and they let this stuff go on. And Jesus is like, well, this is, this is the most important thing. How can you? And so the system that they had set up and allowed to continue is under attack for being unspiritual. And so they, they, they are shamed out by what Jesus is doing. So like most politicians, they want to get ahead of the message, control the narrative, right? And so they question Jesus' authority to make this judgment. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? But notice they don't go to Scripture for this. It's interesting. Their side, they, they demand, demand a miracle, whereas just subtly you hear in the, in, the, in the disciples, a little bit at the time, some of it later once Jesus rose from the dead, they're just noticing, wow, this is exactly what God said would happen. Oh, wow, this is what God said would happen. But the Jews, they're not looking for God's prophecies and they're not seeing Jesus match them. So Jesus gives them a sign, but it's not the one they wanted. He says to them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. That is cryptic. Fair enough that they don't get it. Um, but so the responses that they give, you know, assuming that he's talking about the stone buildings they're standing in, really misses his point. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. What, you're going you're gonna to raise it in three days? But of course, he's actually speaking about himself, his body. When Jesus is talking about that, he's actually referring to when he is going to die on a cross and be dead for three days and then rise again. And I love this honesty from John. After he was raised from the dead, after he was raised from the dead, then his disciples put two and two together. It wasn't earlier. It was only after that they realized what Jesus had been doing. And, and I like that because it, it, it's, it is difficult to understand what on earth Jesus means about things like this sometimes for all of us. But the temple here is the place where God would meet with his people. And Jesus had been telling them all along, that's going to be me. Now, this is this, the, this is the, so there's a history to the temple. In fact, the first temple was the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? I mean, that's where God met with his people. Um, that's, where, that's where he walked and talked with them and could meet with them. But then, then um, sin meant that we couldn't be there. And then they, God came and he rescued them from Egypt. And he said, I'll be with you in the temple in the land. But the final temple, the one place where the divine and the human can live together in perfect harmony, is actually in the person of Jesus. And he died on a cross in order to make that possible. You see, this is the thing. The greatest, like, like this is an extreme example, but it's actually not the extremist. You see, the greatest example of zeal for the nations to be with God was not Jesus clearing some space in a temple courtyard. It was clearing space in the hearts of people by dying for their sin. That's the most extreme thing that he did. He still had some followers uh, at this point in the temple courtyard. He still had a whole lot of the crowd would have been on his side. By the time he gets to the cross, even the blokes who are hanging on crosses next to him are pouring insults on him. He was truly alone. He was truly the Psalm 69 son of David at that moment because he cared. Because zeal for God being with his people consumed him. He just cared so much. And a man, he was willing to go into conflict. 
He was willing to do the hard thing for us. It's beautiful. And Jesus had been prepared. And, and, oh, this is the other thing. Sorry, I just nearly missed it. This is what Jesus had always been talking about. The, this resurrection thing. Like the idea that um, the, the, the disciples made it up after the fact. It's just, it's just, it just doesn't match with the history of things. I mean, Thomas didn't even, they told him Jesus reason. Thomas is like, no, crazy. That's not a thing. They didn't want to believe it. And yet we see here in the Gospels, Jesus has been preparing them for it for years. So that when it did happen, they would realize what it meant, that Jesus is actually alive. And so the temple is now him and anyone can go to him and you can be accepted by God. He's the only place to go. All right. We're nearly there. A couple of little application things. Does anyone remember um, bad 90s Christian hip-hop? Anyone? Yeah? A couple of little nods? No? Some of you? Okay. All right. It's, it's you and me, Jacob. Um, anyone know of a band called DC Talk? Okay. There's a few more. All right. And the album that was called Jesus Freak. All right. What will people do when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find out it's true? It's kind of, it hit, a, it hit a nerve. And, you know, as far as bad 90s Christian hip-hop goes, it was pretty good bad 90s Christian hip-hop. It's going to take courage for us to be who we truly are. To be concerned for the things that matter the most. Jesus didn't make friends by doing what he did that day. He made enemies. Enemies who ended up killing him. Now, look, that's not an excuse for being a jerk. We're being transformed into someone who's willing to die for our enemies. Don't, we don't use this as an excuse for being a jerk. But, but Jesus isn't nice in the sense that palatable conversations are his priority over actually loving people. We can sometimes mistake weakness for love. Weakness and inability to say the truth for kindness. It's not. Jesus was not weak here. He was willing to face conflict. Avoiding conflict is unloving. We need, to, we need to have good conflict in love wherever we can. That, that, that's kindness, that's loveliness, that's goodness. That should, that should be our relationships here. Our relationships here should be willing to speak truth that's difficult in order to love the other person. Love is not avoiding conflict. Love is, I've got a sentence here, determinedly seeking the other person's good, even if it means we have to go through awkward conflict. Love is determinedly seeking the other person's good, even if it means we have to go through awkward conflict. A question I've got to ask myself, have I been loving selflessly like Christ, other person-orientedly like Christ, or have I been conflict-avoiding selfishly? Because it just suits me better. It's easier. Now, one way this can work out for me is actually even at home in my own family. As a father, I'm, I'm balancing so many things, right? We're balancing so many things in life, all of us. But, but including, for me, as I sort of try and set up how the family's going to work, how much pushback I'll get from the kids. If I, want, if, if I say, oh, we're going to do this now, if it doesn't happen to be something that sort of suits them, it's very easy for them, it's like, well, I don't want to have to deal with, you know, the difficulty of setting up a new system or, or a new thing. Like if, if, if there's a way that I can see I can make our family on a God, but I'm just too scared to do it because ah, it'll be too much effort. It'll be too hard. It'll be conflict. Do I set up family patterns in such a way that I am, I am the one fighting for my family to have time with God? 
Has Jesus fought for my family to be able to have time with God and access to God? Am I fighting for that? Or do I let sports, school, career, and all those other voices win because then I don't have to fight? And you know what? Maybe even my own family might think I'm a Jesus freak if I do it too hard. I'm the annoying one who always makes it, makes it seem like Jesus. See, I'm scared of that, and so I don't do that. Now, you don't have to do this in ways to make your kids hate you. Of course, you can do it in fun ways, but do we fight for it? Now, at work, you're scared to be a Jesus freak. Jesus called out religious hypocrisy in the circles that he was in. People got angry at him for it. A church. A church. What if, what if there was something that was important, a way that we, we realized we were, someone was treating someone else not well, they didn't realize it. Have I got the courage to face the conflict in order to treat Jesus as if he matters? In order to treat that person's relationship with Jesus, which is always going to be destroyed by sin, as if that matters even more than the fact that it's going to be an awkward conflict in order for me to call it. There's other things. Um, as a church, we may have to call out churches who claim to be legitimate but are selling lies. Uh, I don't know if have you guys, any of you guys been contacted by the New Heavens and the New Earth Church? It's, it's a, a, a Korean-based thing, Shincheonji. Uh, I don't know how to say that word. I'm Korean, but... Um, I've had, I've had uh, some, some Zoom calls and chats with these people. Um, and from all the research that I've done, they are a cult leading people away from God and into ways that destroy their relationships with their families. This is evil. We need to call that stuff out. The prosperity gospel leads people to worship God's things and the things God gives us rather than worship God, Father, Son, and Spirit. These, th these are things that are not just slightly off. They stop people from connecting with God through Jesus, the true temple. And we've got to call them out as well as evil because they stop people connecting with Jesus. Now, these things are hard. We've got to wisely judge what's best in each circumstance. But as with Jesus, we're going to try and be like him. He was the one who did it for us, so he's the one paving the way. But we do want to try and be like him. We would love it if, I would love it if for all of us we were so zealous for people to be able to meet God in the same way that Jesus was, that we were willing to face the conflict for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you did not let conflict stop you from seeking us out, from chasing us down, from addressing us. Thank you that Jesus didn't shy away from conflict in order to make, make the world have access to you, both in that temple when the, when the world was coming in for the Passover, but also on the cross where he made you accessible to all of us geographically wherever we are but yet still only through him, through that one temple, that one place that you have set for us to be connected with you. Father, we just pray that you'd stir up our hearts, not with desire for conflict, but with zeal for people to be able to meet you and with zeal for us to be with you. Please, we pray. And Father, as we come together now in, in doing the Lord's Supper, Father, we just pray that we would enjoy it that we would honour it, that, we would, do, that this, we, would, we would realise we're doing a big thing as we gather together to be with you and meet with you and celebrate what Jesus has done for us, the one who is our temple, our place to go to be with you. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.